You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is I Will Make You a Millionaire, another episode helping someone reach their goal of making millions. We're talking about Jen live uh, Twitch stream today. Oh I yeah, and, and, and it's interesting because you, as opposed to focusing on a game, you focused on marriage. Yeah, I did. So, you know, it's interesting because everybody goes onto Twitch expecting to find gamers, but I don't know why Twitch is not just used as a live streaming platform for everything. I agree with you. I, yeah. They do. They have like the just chatting sessions. But the thing is the just chatting session doesn't show up at number one because there's so many other people just, they're playing games. So, you know, algorithmically, they will just show like games that are number one. So did you promote the Twitch on like Twitter or as Jay was saying earlier on your newsletter? I didn't because I just wanted to test it out and see what it was like, go through the motion. So I didn't, I didn't promote it at all, but I ended up having so much fun doing it that now my brain is spiraling of all the different live streams <laughs> I could do. I live streamed myself writing the newsletter that I sent out this morning and I shared my screen as I was going through it and I just wrote the whole thing in 20 minutes and that's what that's I live That's a great idea. And how many people are watching? Zero, but I loved it anyway. And I gave it all my full attention, even though no one was there. <laughs> That's great. The thing is, Jen doesn't put on makeup. That's why zero viewers. <laughs> I know. I told, <laughs> no, I told Jay, I was like, I that woke up. That is sexist, Jay. I, <laughs> no, but I told him I woke up. I didn't put on makeup. I had my coffee and I just did it very raw and real. I didn't, you know, over rehearse. And I enjoyed myself. Jen, what's your channel? I'm going to subscribe to your channel. Oh, no, it's just Jen Glance, I think, right? Uh, yeah, Jen Glance. Yeah. I don't think you can subscribe. You can, you can follow first because I don't, because Jen is not… Uh, I am following not, uh, Jen yeah. Glance right now. Thank you for your support during Check this out the Coffee Talk stream from two hours ago. Oh, here's your, here's your oh, video, no. recent broadcast. I was uh, really hoping no one would ever find this, but… <laughs> no, this is great, are. actually. Great. Oh, so you're, are you sharing your screen? What were you using to do Twitch? I use their software. So Twitch has something you download, and they let you share your screen. So I shared my screen as I was writing my newsletter, and it shows me sort of writing it, Googling for tips on what things I was including, and um, yeah. This is awesome. Yeah, I like this. Uh, it's very uh, raw and just a very big test. We could do a lot better, but you know what? I needed to get myself to finally start, and that's what I just did today. 
Yeah, I like it. Uh, I've been playing around with Twitch myself, but not so consistent. Uh, you know, as we <laughs> talked about last week, consistency is important. Yeah. And so people yeah. know when to find you on there. You could even do kind of combine your Twitter Q&A with uh, Twitch. So that when you do like a Twitter Q&A or a Reddit AMA or whatever, you could live stream that. So you could talk while you're answering stuff on text. And so then you could respond to either the chat or Twitch or whatever. This It's an unexpected use of Twitch. And I wanna talk a little bit more about the unexpected today. But first, how are things going? I got your newsletter today. It was excellent. I'm loving your newsletter. I'm Thank gonna, you. I'm gonna share your newsletter right now, actually. Let's see. I got your newsletter. I've been doing, I'm starting my, this was the start of my three times a week for the newsletter. So I sent one out on Monday. I sent one out today and I'll send one out Friday. So I'm doing the three times a week. I was scared at first to do that. Cause again, even though you said every day or three times a week, I was so scared that I was going to overwhelm people and that they would unsubscribe, but I got over that feeling and I'm going to do three times a week for now. Yeah. And you know, like in this one, the title of this one was, uh, well, I'm looking at the questions right now. Let me find the time. 52 annoying questions people ask right after you get married. And I love this because you have the story. You have this woman who's like sitting down next to you on the bench. And then you have the 52 questions. And then you kind of close with, you know, reasons to share this newsletter, which I really like. And uh, I think what might be an interesting follow-up newsletter is to answer some of these questions as well. When do you, when do you ha like, how do you respond to the 52 annoying questions? Like if I were to ask you right now, well, okay, you just got married. When are you having kids? What would you say? I, I know. I, I was thinking that I could maybe choose a couple of the questions and have my humorous responses, have expert responses, have real yeah. people responses to almost open it up to all of the different ways you could answer some of these questions. I love this. The one that I wrote on Monday was so popular. Substack even emailed me basically saying, you know, like the automated email saying that it was on fire because so many people were looking at it. It got so many opens, so many clicks, and it was about uh, marriage therapy. And I think it was so popular because it's such a taboo topic. It was called, We Went to a Marriage Therapist Because One of Us Had a Secret. And I think there was just such a catchy nature to the title and the subtitle that it went, it did pretty well for the amount of subscribers I have. So, so how many subscribers right now do you have? Last week you had just hit a hundred. Yeah, I think this, I was number one hundred eight. You what, were lucky, what? number one hundred eight. And this week we're at two hundred. And I only wow. really spent about one day growing it. So I spent one day. I spent all day yesterday growing it from one hundred to two hundred. And I did you, that in ten more different ways. You, you know, the great thing about consistency is that's the only way to kick in compounding. So what I mean by that is like. For a long time, it feels like, oh my gosh, I only have 100. Now I have 200, now I have 400. This is nothing. I need, I won't be successful till I have 50,000. But the good thing is, is that in just 20 doubles, uh, you know, one subscriber turns into a million subscribers. So if there's just any sort of compounding, any sort of exponential component to the growth, whether it's one month or six months or a year, sooner or later, if you're doing any kind of exponential style compounding at all, even if it's 10% a month or 2% a day or whatever, it eventually turns into tens of thousands. And you only get that compounding with, of, of course, quality is always assumed, but consistency. So if people know, okay, every Monday, 
and then you know and and the quality implies also shareability but you're you it looks like you're focusing on that a lot more so you're you're going to get there and it's just a matter of you know the consistency and the persistence of it so so this is good yeah and i think so i did i i used 10 different tricks this week than last week to grow it i did the giveaway i did the king sumo giveaway and oh, really? that yeah, that got me like 20 subscribers in less than an hour, just starting the giveaway, promoting it a couple of different ways. So that was really taking off. And again, I just started it yesterday and it already gave me, you know, a handful of new subscribers. And, and what are you I giving just, away? I'm giving away a $25 Amazon gift card and then all three of my books. So that costs me nothing except the $25 gift card, really. And so I figured the Amazon gift card would really get people to care. And then my books also just sort of put my brand back into that forefront of their minds. So that was my combination. Yeah. Um, let me see. Did you mention the giveaway in the newsletter? I didn't mention it in the newsletter because I, I figured people already subscribed. So I didn't mention the giveaway in the newsletter, but I mentioned right. it. In but, but you want the people who subscribed to win the contest and they win the contest by sharing your newsletter. So they get for every time they share and someone subscribes, they get five more entries to the contest. Okay. I'm going to add it into the newsletter. Okay. I'm going to add it into the newsletter. Um, yeah, I, I, fe I felt like the ways that got me the most subscribers this week was the consistency. So putting out, you know, Monday and Wednesday, putting out new content, not waiting for just one week. The giveaway got me new subscribers, and I did a lot more promotion on my existing brands. I promoted it on my podcast, which I didn't do before. I did a whole episode on the podcast, not about the newsletter, but how I grew the newsletter from zero to 100. And because it was a growth-focused podcast, that really got me a lot of new subscribers to the newsletter. So I, I just made a list last week after we spoke of 10 new ways I could grow this. And that is what I did in a 24-hour period was just act on that list. And I was able to double it. So that's an interesting thing. So this was on your podcast. You described a growth strategy for the newsletter. Yeah. And I basically, I positioned it as if you want to grow anything, whether it's a project, maybe it's a new career, whatever it is, this is an episode for you. And I walked them through all of the things I did to grow the newsletter, how you could apply that to your life and your project. And then I also shared with them what worked and what didn't work. And I got a lot of feedback that people loved how there was such a purpose to the newsletter that it wasn't, it, there wasn't, the podcast wasn't promotional. It was very much actionable for people to listen to. Yeah. So that's interesting. So let me ask you, before we dive into all things marriage related, let me ask you this. You have a very unusual job. Like I love telling your story. I went out to dinner with like 10 friends about a week ago and people were asking me what I was up to. And I described the podcast with you and that you were, um, your business that you started was you, you were a bridesmaid for hire. And as you could probably imagine, everybody's first reaction is what? And they had never heard of such a thing before. So let me ask you the question, just out of curiosity, what other jobs or, or entrepreneurship or lifestyle type entrepreneurs would make one say that you've probably heard about that would make other people say, what the hell is that? Because you, because doing this, probably other people have contacted you and said, yeah, I do this. That's also really strange and unusual. What other things have you heard about given that you've been in the unusual entrepreneurship category for a while now. 
you know, I've heard the things that I'm sure a lot of people have heard about the professional hugger that people pay to hug, to hug them or to cuddle with them. I've heard about that. I've even heard people in the wedding space, not so much in America, but in other places where people will hire people to be wedding guests with the purpose of them being entertaining, like being the ones to start the party on the dance floor. I've heard wow. people who are um, professional, like criers at funerals. So people will pay. This is, I think, very. Is popular. that a real story? Is that yeah, really in other true? countries. I, I've, I'm not sure if it's Japan or what country it is, but there is something uh, where China. people will pay people to come to funerals to cry. Um, that's one thing. So I, I've heard that. And those are like the similar types of things to hiring a bridesmaid, but also very different at the same time. I think a lot of the things that people turn their heads at when it comes to an odd job are things that just seem so far-fetched that they're shocked somebody had the courage to do. You know, even when I started Bridesmaid for Hire, people said to me, oh my God, like I thought about doing that, but I never really took action on it. And it's because it takes a lot of courage to get off an airplane and walk into a person's life and be their bridesmaid. And that's why some of these jobs, I think, really turn people's heads. I think I think all these things you're describing are, first off, are there any other ones you've heard of? Like, well, what's what's another one? Let's let's make a list. Let's Let's push. I've heard people, you know, um, who do like interesting kind of like circus act things, whether it's like, oh, this person is a professional fire eater, where they're like eat fire or like professional sword swallower. Um, and now are those people hired for, for, for circuses or for other things? Usually for events. So not even for, for circus events, but maybe people will hire them for private parties or for, you know, just other types of events. So I've heard that. Um, I got an email the other day. A woman wanted me, to, uh, was talking to me about weird jobs that she's seen. And she said that she's seen um, a pet psychic. That was something that was very interesting to her. And what does a pet psychic do? A pet psychic will, I guess, maybe talk to your dog, look at your dog, examine your dog, and tell you what the dog is thinking or what the dog might be thinking next or in the future for the dog. So, And, and what, what sort of outcomes do people want from that? Like, do they want to know the dog's going to live or do they want to know the dog likes them? Like, what, is, what do people want from a pet psychic? I think some people, and I might be guilty of maybe doing this in the future, want to know the dog's, you know, past before they got the dog. Where did the dog come from? What did they experience? What did they go through? So they almost want to know maybe what happened in the past and perhaps even what the future might look like for their pet. You know, when you love your pet, you will spend money on anything. That is the kind of industry where if you love your animal, you will pull out your credit card for anything. And then what's another one? Um, I think another one that I've heard of is a professional, you know, like the professional wingman sort of thing, which I think people are always very fascinated by. I also yeah, and I, think- I, I've heard of a professional uh, wing girl because if a guy goes to a bar, much better than having a wingman is a wing girl because other women will see the guy with a girl. So they think it's like social proof. They figure, oh, if this nice looking girl likes this guy, he must be at least acceptable to talk to. Yeah, yeah, and I think like that's um, that's that's such an interesting thing is because I I think that there's nothing wrong with that either. You know, I actually thought about um, not I thought about starting this business. I don't think that I could do this business, but I would hire somebody to do this for me. Is a professional who teaches you how to have conversations. You know, I would almost mm. hire a person who can sit down with me and work with me on how to get better at having conversations. Um, you know I, what? Did see- I need to hire that as well. Like I'm good at these conversations and I'm good at my, my thing is I'm good at talking to like thousands of people in a talk, or I'm good at going on stage and doing stand up comedy, 
But if it's me hanging out socially with a group of people, yeah. even people I know well, I, I am silent. I can't talk at all. I me need too. That, I need that help. I walk into a room sometimes if, and I just freeze. And that's something that I would totally hire. I would pay $150 an hour for that. Another yeah. one that I did see was, I forgot the name of the service, but you can, this, this woman has a very interesting business. You can hire somebody to go to a party with you and help you socialize. So you can hire this person for $25 an hour to come to a party with you and take you into a social setting, into a circle of people and get you talking, get you socializing. And I thought that was cool. And the business model she had was pretty interesting because she wanted to take on no risk. So it was only, her service was really matching people, people who wanted to do this with people who needed this without really taking on risk or hiring employees. So it was almost like a matching service. And I thought that was really cool. That reminds me of a conversation we had last week where what's essentially the three components of every business in its purest form. And so Uber is a good example where people who have an excess of one thing, you have other people who want access to that excess and you have a platform in the middle. So Uber, some people have an excess of empty car seats. Other people want access to those empty car seats to get from one place to another. And Uber is just the platform in the middle. There's no employees. They're just a matching of people who need car seats to people who have car seats. And this woman is is doing that perfectly with the party thing. Uber takes no risk. There's no employees. You, there's no responsibility if there's uh, an accident or whatever. And uh, they don't have to pay all the, you know, they don't have to deal with all the headaches of employees. And it's just a match. Say Airbnb is just a matching service. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that, you know, that's a good business model because you don't, you're not liable and you're almost serving as that middle person. Another person I heard of that I've, I've done some work with is a friendship coach who teaches you how to make new friends. I and Hey, that. what's wrong with that? Because people use that dating app Bumble to meet friends. So this person will, and I, I wrote an article where I interviewed her. She gave me experiments to meet people. She, she gave me three experiments of things I can do to go meet new friends. All three were wildly uncomfortable and they didn't necessarily work, but they could work. So people can pay her to help them make new friends. What, what, can you tell me the, the exercises? Yeah, one of them she wanted me to do was for one week when I was out places, making eye contact and just striking up conversation with everyone. So if you're in line to get coffee, find a reason to talk to the person in front of you, behind you, which is sort of awkward to do in New York City. So that was one. And no, it didn't make me any friends, but it did. What the, the point of that experiment was to help push you to be more social in situations that you might hide from. And you never yeah, know who practice. you're going to meet. Yeah, it was practice. It's exercising that muscle which I need to exercise more of. Another one she said was to find a new hobby and go to that hobby multiple times. So if you're going to go to a yoga class with the purpose of making a friend, that first time you're probably not. But what if you went six times and every time you went, you made an effort to speak to people? That might help. She says a lot of times people go places to a networking event, to a conference, whatever it is, with this goal. And then when they don't succeed at the goal, they never go back. So she made me pick something and go to it multiple times. And I didn't meet anybody, but... I found myself meeting people who I made, you know, small talk with and things like that. The third thing, which was the most uncomfortable, was to message a friend of a friend or somebody that you have met, um, you know, once or twice, who's like maybe a distant acquaintance and make plans with them. Because oftentimes some of your new friends can be friends of friends, but we just don't always think about that. And that was tough because... You know, I think with friendship, it's so awkward to say, hey, you know, I like you, want to get coffee. Like, it's just, it's so awkward because you're not dating the person, but it feels like you are. And I'm just not good at that. 
Yeah, that's I love all these exercises. So you know what? So so by the way, we made eleven on our on our list of weird jobs. And uh, what's interesting about all of these, except for maybe the the only exception that I'm about to categorize all these, and the only one that doesn't count is the fire eater slash sword swallower. But all of these sort of suggest that jobs are created by some sort of disconnect in our culture. Mm -hmm. So the fact that some people need a professional hugger means something went wrong along the way with society that people feel so disconnected from the others around them or alienated that they need, they need to pay someone for a hug or they need to pay someone to teach them how to have a conversation with somebody or they need to pay someone to be a guest at their wedding. And uh, it, it's interesting because I wonder, and the, the reason I bring this up is people people in in the beginning of the pandemic were looking for new ways to make money that were different from the old ways because you know everybody was sort of 55 million people were fired or laid off. And I wonder if there's another newsletter opportunity called Weird Jobs where maybe it doesn't have to be three times a week. Maybe this one's just once a month or who knows. Uh, uh, but you explore another weird job. And the reason this is different from the marriage one, the marriage one has a huge audience, a huge potential audience. This also has a huge and completely different uh, potential audience because people want to make money. People still don't want to go back to, if you if you just had a year off from your job, maybe you don't want to go back and you want to be a professional hugger or, or a professional wingman or wing girl or, or, you know, a friendship coach or, or arrange people to go to parties with other people. I don't know. Maybe there's something there of a newsletter for about weird jobs or a course or mm -hmm. whatever, or, or just a, a one-off book, 101 weird jobs. And you sell that from your original newsletter and podcast and so on. So I just throw stuff out there. I just was curious because you had such a weird job or have such a weird job slash business that I'm sure you must've been exposed to many ideas about other sorts of, you know, people, there's probably a community of people who have weird jobs or hear about weird jobs and they hear about your job and they say, oh, that reminds me of this person I know who's professional, you know, office worker, or, you know, like they're, <laughs> they're a fake office worker to show clients, how many employees there are at a business or whatever, yeah. uh, some weird thing. And, uh, I, I, I just throw it out there. It's another potential interesting topic. Yeah, you're right. I feel like us weird job people, we're always on the lists, like the articles that we're always, you know, on the same articles together. We're always on the same TV shows together. I feel like we should start, you know, like a meetup, but I love that. And I think, you know, I, I was always exploring the idea of doing a course about it because so many people are like, how did you do it? And not even the bridesmaid aspect of it, but how did you take a weird idea and turn it into a business? Almost like a course on how to, how to turn anything you love or anything you enjoy into a business because maybe you do love giving people hugs, but making that a business is probably the same as becoming a friendship coach, you know? So maybe it's, it's a course like that, but I, I think it's a great idea because so many people not only want to know about these weird businesses, but they want to know about the business model and they want to know how they can start something like it. And, and I think in some cases they want to hear stories. Yeah. Like if you're, someone's a professional wing girl, she probably has a lot of like weird, insane stories. And again, why are they weird? It's because again, all of this is about some, some disconnect, some alienation that people have 
as society has drifted, you know, in the past from 100 years, everybody's left the village, everybody's left the family home, and they're out there on the own, on their own in this increasingly urbanized, you know that, you know, that saying like, you know, in New York City, when people first moved to New York City, a common thing they say is, I never saw so many people and I never felt so alone at the same time. And all of these um, weird jobs that you mentioned are related to this, this disconnect of being around people, but feeling disconnected from them. And I wonder what other things there are, like, you know, maybe like when people, for many people are moving now, moving cities, maybe almost like a concierge service. Like when you move into a city, here's, we're going to set you, here's how we're going to find you all the basic services. Here's how you're going to make friends. Here's how you're going to find relationships, you know, almost like a concierge. Here's all the great restaurants to go to and we'll make reservations for you. Almost, maybe that's another thing. I'm, I'm just thinking yeah. of, uh, that might be a bad idea. Bad idea is always acceptable. I'm just thinking of what other times people feel disconnected by, you know, for 40,000 years, humans lived one way. And now for the past 100 years, humans have lived in a completely different way, which is, which has caused the need for a pet psychic. You know, people feel lonely. So they want, what they really want to know is their pet has feelings similar to they have. So they want to know what those feelings are. I think anything could be a business though. Like if you think about any life moment, any life problem, anything day to day, anything could be a business. People pay people for everything. Like whether it's home organization or organizing the clothes yeah. in your closet by color or meal prepping for you. Or, I mean, people are willing to pay for anything these days. So I really think like anything can be a business. People pay people to come in their house and clear the energy in their space. You know, that's a whole world right there. Believe me, I have had that happen. I've, <laughs> I've used one of those people, not me, but an ex-wife, uh, yeah. used, used one of those people and that person made a lot of money. Yeah. And yeah, I think it's like, but I think it's almost like, this is what I, I'm so passionate about encouraging people. If you have a skill or you have something that you like doing, you can make money off of it. You know, I think also another thing that always strikes me is even as we're talking about all of these odd businesses, and maybe I'm the weird person, but a huge part of me is thinking I would hire almost all of these people. You know, I think yeah. most people, when they call it weird, what they're also trying to say is that's so interesting. And then they start to question whether or not they would even hire that person. I think when I started but, Bridesmaid for Hire, people were like, that's crazy. But then secretly a part of them was like, actually, I sort of could, I could have hired you or, oh, you know, I don't want to admit it, but I do need someone like you. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, 
but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle, and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. I don't know if anybody does this at all, but it seems to me this would be an interesting job and this person would have interesting stories if there was a job, is a person who helps people make people disappear. Like if somebody just wants to have a new identity for some reason, be interesting to, if, if you know, it's skirting some regulatory area, but, uh, you know, someone who's a professional disappearer. Yeah, <laughs> Like here's how it. you, yeah, they don't get you the fake passport because that would be illegal, but they tell you, hey, not recommending anything, but if one did want to do this, this is what one would do. Okay, and I so, love that. <laughs> I wonder if that exists. If anybody listening to this knows a professional disappearer, let us know. I'm um, obsessed. I have one that I'm going to throw out there. I'm obsessed with watching The Sopranos right now. So what if it's like hire a mafia person or an ex-mafia person for the day and just get a tour of their life? You know, I, I know there's oh a guy God. on Airbnb that does this and makes a lot of money doing like mafia tours. But I would hire someone to show me around and take or, me around for the day. Or, or like, now there is a service to hire bodyguards. Here, here, this is just another one. There is a person, there is obviously services to hire bodyguards. But what about hiring a fake bodyguard? So what I mean is, like, you know, sometimes like when you go to a, a bar or, or you see bodyguards with celebrities, they're huge. They're massive people. And they're ready to kill you. Now, I don't want to hire someone who's ready to kill somebody but I want to hire two big people to just follow me around. Like (laughs) two huge, huge people so that when I walk around with two huge people right behind me, everyone looks. Like what if I'm, like I'm planning on playing in my first chess tournament in 25 years in a few weeks. What if I hired two fake bodyguards to just stand behind me uh, during each game so that my opponent is just utterly intimidated? Like that would be kind of funny to me and I would pay money for that. What about hiring just a group of people to walk behind you so you look important or hiring paparazzi or hiring someone to take your Instagram photos for you for a week? You know, I feel like anything to make you feel important or, you know, you know what? I think the cool thing with like Airbnb experiences is you have so many people on there who are doing this, who are putting out services just like that. Oh, that's interesting. Let me, let me see. So uh, I remember... They, um, Airbnb has a conference every year, or at least they used to, 
to for all the um, people who are hosts, meaning they, they own apartments that they Airbnb out. And I actually uh, gave one of the, um, the the headline talks for for this conference because I was living in Airbnbs at the time. And that was the conference where they announced Airbnb experiences. Mm. I wonder if those have like taken off uh, if they're doing well. Yeah, they have. I've done them. I've done them during the pandemic, before the pandemic, and I've loved them. I did one where I did like a a, a walking tour in LA where they take your picture. So like by the Hollywood sign, it was very cheesy, but you know, if you want some good Instagram photos, they're all, there's all these like tours like that. Like, oh, I'm an influencer. I'll take you around for the day and show you how to pose like an influencer or I'm the best vintage shopper in New York City. I'll shop with you one day. I think there's a mafia tour. There's, you know, there's things just like what we're talking about that would be considered odd jobs, but on Airbnb experience, they're considered to be cool. Oh my God. Here's one who helps. He's a professional sandcastle builder on beaches. So he helps people build amazing sandcastles. And uh, here's one. You can design your own custom fragrance. Uh, let's see. Yeah, the Airbnb experiences are a good source of these. I wonder if anyone's making... So what's one step up where somebody's making like a lot of money? Because these ones, they're probably not making a lot of money. But I wonder what's a weird thing people can do that makes a lot of money. So, yeah. so I was reading about something recently where, uh, a, a good job is to go to like, let's say law firms and say, you'll, you know, usually when a law firm is done with a computer, they can't just throw it out because there's regulations. They have all this sort of private legal data. And if someone were to steal out of the garbage, their computers, they would have access to a lot of private information that's, that's legally protected. So, before a law, a law firm, in many cases, I don't know how many law firms obey the laws, but in in many cases, a law firm has to do all sorts of things to clean their computers. So I wonder if you go around and say, look, I, I'll take your computers for free. I'll just do this for free. You don't have to throw them out and take this risk. I am verified in some way, or I'll prove to you that I've cleaned the computer, but I just I, you just give it to me for free. They clean the computer, and then they sell the cleaned computer on eBay and make a living. And that's a, that's like a multi-billion dollar industry right now. And so there's all sorts of like weird jobs and weird industries out there that people have no idea even exist. Or, or like another guy I know, he takes recyclables from people, strips the steel out of the, the recyclables and then resells the steel on the steel market. The steel is a, like a commodity and has a price and you take people's recyclables that they were throwing away for free anyway, and or you take businesses' recyclables, so it's a much greater amount, and you strip the steel out of it. It's an ugly business. You're basically collecting garbage and then going through the garbage to find steel. But then you make a lot of money for with no cost of just, you know, the cost of stripping out the steel, but that's it. And you sell the steel on the steel market. Yeah, I feel like there's so, a lot of very unglamorous businesses like that, whether in like the cleaning industry or even with like pandemic cleaning for the virus. Or I heard about, you know, people who clean movies, movie theater screens can make a lot of money. Um, I, you know, all of those kinds of things can be can be so huge. But I think people don't ever think about that. They never go there. Yeah. You know, someone who basically pandemic proofs uh, an office space. Yep. Yep. can be a regular, uh, you know, once a month they come in and pandemic proof the office space, meaning yeah. the sanitizers are all replaced. 
the cleaning equipment, you know, the cleaning sprays are all replaced. The doorknobs maybe are replaced. I don't know. Um, you make sure the cubicles, the architecture is just right. I don't know. So, so anyway, my point is, uh, is that, so that's one step higher up than the initial jobs of like pet psychic and so on. Like these are jobs that can actually make an enormous amount of money and are scalable because you build a brand and then you could hire people for it and who can't steal your business. So yeah, it seems like a one interesting idea for a newsletter is just one called weird jobs. You know, either you'd get like tens of thousands of subscribers or people would, uh, or, or, you know, people would pay for a paid for subscription perhaps later on. Um, so anyway, it's just, I'm just practicing thinking up ideas, particularly I started thinking of, you know, everybody you can, it's like, it's like a, a, a story, you know, there's this Rashomon story where something happens and you see that story from like five different points of view and everybody sees it from a completely different point of view. So you are, you are a bridesmaid for hire. So on the one hand, one point of view is, oh, how do you become a bridesmaid for hire? Another point of view is, oh, you know, an extraordinary amount about marriages from a different angle than, than other people. Another point of view that I could look at you as is you're someone who knows something about weird jobs. And there's probably many different ways to slice your experience so that you can get just as much knowledge, but just from a different angle. And I started thinking, oh, well, one thing Jen knows about along with being a good bridesmaid is weird jobs that are out there because that's a weird job. And then not only that, how to monetize a weird job in unusual ways. Like you wrote a, not, it's not that you're just a bridesmaid for hire. It also was open the door for you getting publicity. It opened the door for you writing books. It opened the door for you having a podcast. So what one can do with a weird job is not just the weird job, but all these other spokes around the weird job. So it strikes me that that's another potential newsletter. Not that you should do it, but maybe you should, maybe you shouldn't. It's just an, an, an idea for the day. But you, you know what I'm thinking though is like, are there places, like what if there was one website where everyone who had a weird job could list their weird job and anybody who wanted to hire something weird could go there to find that, you know, like, could I, could it be a marketplace? Cause yeah, Airbnb has a little bit of that with their experiences, but is there a place that people can go to list all of their weird jobs? And then people who are like, Hey, I have some money. I want to spend it can go there and find that service, you know, because right now all these odd jobs are scattered everywhere. Yeah. And it might, I didn't even realize for instance, that you could hire wedding guests who will start the dancing. But if I was having a big wedding with 300 people, maybe I would want to hire one or two people to be professional guests just to make sure it's fun. Or maybe if someone was living right near me and I was going to some random party where I didn't know a lot of people, maybe I would hire someone to come with me to the party. Cause I'm feeling a little shy or whatever, yeah. or just for fun. Maybe I would hire two fake bodyguards to walk with me down main street or whatever of some town. And that, that would be fun. Or maybe I would look at the, the weird job marketplace and think to myself, Hmm, I could do that. And I could do it in a different way. And now I have a weird job that could maybe make a million dollars like this, you know, t getting the steel from recyclables or something like that. Uh, cause it's probably it, on the one hand, it's a commodity type of business. Anyone can do it. But on the other hand, and this is what this guy told me, the uglier the business, the less competition, the more money you can make. Right. So like everybody wants to be a movie star. So that's too competitive. 
it's not obviously it's not an ugly business and uh it's very hard to make money if you're an actor but if i want to say look i'm gonna pick up garbage and find steel in it people will say go right ahead Be you're better you than me yeah. and uh so ug ugly business you know or another, that's another title for newsletters ugly businesses so oh, uh yeah so there's just there's something there just to just to think about and uh it's interesting because you know one and and the reason i'm thinking about this i remember when in the early 80s i think it was i think it was showtime or maybe it was the movie channel started uh another movie channel so it was like the movie channel and then they started something else i forget what else another channel so their salespeople were going around and trying to sell people two channels and so hbo at the time heard about this and hbo only had hbo and so they figured uh okay the best way to compete is they needed to start another channel so they started cinemax and now they were competitive again selling against the movie channels other alternatives and so you know the lesson being you know having two things you're selling is almost better than one because each could link to the other and uh just made me think. I don't know again yeah. if that works in in this context, and and you're working really hard on the marriage newsletter, but it's just always something to think about because I think, again, you know, last time the reach was going from one newsletter a week to three or more newsletters a week. Maybe there's another reach here where I don't know, might be too much of a reach, or maybe there's also the thought that we should branch out from newsletters. But uh, I'm just thinking of other other ways to to. You know, you want to have as many irons in the fire as possible to give yourself as many chances as possible to see what lights on fire. I do think the marriage newsletter will light on fire, but I always think of, yeah, you know, even even for myself right now, I'm starting at least two different businesses. Plus, I have my old business I still make money from. Plus, I write. Plus, I do a podcast. So I always try to think of. Plus, I invest. I always try to think of, you know, and I've said this on the podcast before in other situations, but. Even the IRS says the average multimillionaire has somewhere between five and seven streams of income. Yeah. And so it's just an interesting thing to start thinking about is what's the next, what's the next, not just spoke around marriage, but spoke around business in general. Yeah. I, so, this is, but, I wanted to talk to you about this because, you know, even yesterday, someone was, someone asked me, so what do you do? And I said, you know, I do a lot of different things. Here's seven to 10 ways I make money every month. None of them make me a ton of money, but here's what I do. And this person said, you are exhausting and you need to stick to just one thing. And I, I feel the same way as you. I like to have multiple things going on, but I guess my question is number one, when do you know when to stop something? And two, when do you know, okay, let me get this in a good place before starting something else? Because I feel like I have a, a collection of so many things that are at this level that are not quite where they should be, but I'm not really investing so much time. So I feel like a bit of a mess and, my yeah. and I don't really know what to do with all the things I already have. So, so it, it's a good question. And there's obviously there's no a hundred percent answer. So I could, I could just talk from, from my experience, like first off a real quick precursor. I made a lot of money in a business in the nineties. I made websites for, you know, when very few companies had websites, like I made AmericanExpress.com, timewarner.com and so on. And I sold that business and made a lot of money. And then I went totally broke. That's like my core story in my books and everything like that. But first off, even that first business, 
We had no idea if that was a good business or not, making websites, who knows? We didn't know if the internet was really gonna be the thing. And so we debated like, should we also be in the iced tea business? Should we also start a record label? Like we were constantly trying to come up with new ideas and we didn't really come up with anything else. Um, but we did sell that business anyway of making websites and I made a lot of money and then I went broke. So then the next time around, I, I did more of the collection of income streams idea, which is I started writing every day. So I was selling articles for $200 an article but I was doing articles 30 days a month. So, yeah. uh, or actually, no, it was like $400 an article then. Oh no, maybe I forget now. Uh, let's just say, I think it was $400 an article. So I was making um, about $10,000 a month from articles. Now people don't pay as much for articles. Back then they did. And, but then also I started writing for the Financial Times. So that was once a week and that was $500. So it was another $2,000. And then I would start getting book deals. So the advances weren't huge because it was, uh, I was just starting and I was doing financial books. So my advances would be like $10,000 and I would do one a year. And, but still it added, it was adding to things. And then I started speaking uh, about finance stuff. I was a spokesperson for Fidelity and I didn't charge them a lot, but I was making, let's say another 50 or 60,000 a year from that. And then I started managing money a little bit. And I, I was small. I wasn't making huge, but maybe that was another 50 to a hundred thousand. And so it was adding up that doing like six or six to 10 different things. Some of them didn't make any money. Some of them made more money. I was probably making between 250 and 300,000 a year. Now, mind you, I had been worth millions at one point, lost it all. So I was rebuilding, but the only way I could rebuild without having to have an actual employer was by doing lots of different things because no one thing paid my salary really. And uh, it was only through doing a lot of things. And then I started dabbling in starting other businesses, which I eventually did, or investing, which I eventually did, but only in very tiny amounts. I didn't have that much money. So I would invest in very tiny amounts and it would build up. But uh, so the, your, your, your friend who told you stick to one thing is absolutely wrong. Because again, and this is not coming from my own anecdotal experience, the IRS actually says the average multimillionaire has at least five different streams of income. So a job is just one stream. And by the way, even a business is just one stream. So of course, some people make millions from a job. Some people make millions starting a business and selling it, but that's relatively rare. You hear the stories, oh, somebody just sold their business, made 10 million. You hear a lot of stories, but it's relatively rare and a little bit of luck that somebody just doing one thing makes a lot of money. To, to make a lot of money at a job, you have to be the CEO of a big company. To make a lot of money at a business, the business has to A, succeed, it has to be a great idea, and you have to sell it. Or you have to make generate so much income from it that it makes you a lot of money. It's a relatively a rare thing. But uh, like, like someone who owns a laundromat, that's a business, but maybe they make a salary, but that's about it. Uh, so your friend's not correct. If you want to make a million dollars, you have to do multiple things and you have to manage part of the, uh, thing about making a lot of money and doing multiple things is you have to manage your time. So you, so you can't, you can't really go out with friends seven nights a week because you have to, you know, wake up an hour earlier than everyone else or, or stay awake an hour earlier than everyone else and not 
be drinking so that you can focus on writing the next newsletter or whatever. Yeah, and it's not like you have to be so strict with yourself that you have to cut out everything fun in your life, but you probably can't binge watch Game of Thrones for the eighth time in a row. You probably have to, that's 160 hours you've lost. And in those 160 hours, you could have written probably 160 newsletters. Yeah. So just by not watching Game of Thrones, that's an entire year's worth of newsletters potentially. And uh, uh, so that's a, that's a whole income stream that simply binge watching Game of Thrones denies you the opportunity to do. And so you, you, you can pick and choose which areas you, you cut, but you have to be very efficient with your time. You know, also you have to figure out more ways to scale. So for instance, you mentioned, um, people, one job is people come in and organize houses. So that's like the Marie Kondo thing. Marie Kondo wrote this book. Uh, gosh, I forgot the name of it. Do you remember the name of that Marie Kondo book? Is it the art of tidying up the, um, yeah, yeah. The art of tidying up, but that is not how she made her money. Um, she has the the Netflix show, right? She has all that. And that is not the way she made money. So the life change, life changing magic of tidying up sold millions of copies. Her Netflix show did very well, but even if a a book sells a million copies, maybe you, I don't even know if you make a million dollars from that. Like you do well and your next book will probably have a good advance, but you're probably not making a million dollars from the book and a Netflix show pays almost nothing because it's like they're a monopoly. You want a Netflix show, you're going to do it for almost nothing. But here's how Marie Kondo made, and and by the way, then a lot of people called Marie Kondo and said, hey, can you organize my house? But that doesn't make a lot of money. All these things were just spokes for, for her. Maybe all together they did okay, but how she really made money, maybe tens of millions of dollars, is she set up a training program to teach people how to be a Marie Kondo coach, a Marie Kondo certified coach at or at tidying up. So now they can go to people and advertise their business. Hey, I'm certified by Marie Kondo to tidy up your house. And, uh, that's how she made her money is by selling her, her coaching certification. And so she figured out different ways to scale her business. She had the multiple spokes around this one. The wheel was tidying up and she had these multiple spokes like book and TV show and doing it herself. But then it's the certification program that was another spoke where she made something like $30 million. And uh, that's, you know, it's again, it's, and you only get to do that if you're constantly exposing yourself to new ideas of things to do and new spokes for your business and new wheels even to build spokes off of and, and so on. And that's the one that, that worked for her. I appreciate hearing this because I I feel like so many people I encounter look at my life, look at my seven to 10 ways I make my money and say things like, you have to focus on one. If you don't pick one, nothing's ever going to work out. They say those things and you sometimes start to believe it. You know, I I think a lot of times when I explain to people what I do, I, I have this fear and maybe I'm projecting that they think I don't do anything well, that they think I just do a mixture of everything. But, you know, I've been working for myself for six years and I do have seven to 10 streams of income and I, I, I'm self-employed. I make all of my money myself, so I'm doing something right. But you definitely hear people def- judge somebody who is doing so many different things in their life. Yeah, and so there's two things to unpack there and I and I still haven't fully answered what, when, um, when you decide to quit. So one thing is I, I, I actually just, just yesterday, I wrote the forward to a book. Uh, it's someone who's been on this podcast quite a bit, Brian Keating. He, uh, is a 
well-known physicist. He almost won the Nobel Prize, so he wrote a book called Losing the Nobel Prize. And he, he on his podcast, he's interviewed a lot of podcast uh, Nobel Prize winners. And so he's writing, he's writing a book, uh, which we talked about on my podcast, uh, uh, called uh, Into the Impossible. But it's basically, he, he describes how all these Nobel Prize winners what did they do differently to become Nobel Prize winners? And he asked me to write the forward. And I totally was hit with imposter syndrome. Like, who am I to write a forward for a book about Nobel Prize winners? And particularly, like, like I feel like all these Nobel Prize winners, since the age of four, they've been physicists. And, you know, when they were 21, they figured out how, you know, quarks turn into atoms and they win the Nobel prize and they do all the research and math and all that. And I've been, you know, a computer programmer and a writer and a stand-up comedian and an entrepreneur, you know, all these different things. I feel like a dilettante sometimes that, you know, kind of mildly good at many things, but not like the best in the world at anything. And, uh, so I think that's an okay thing because not everybody becomes a Nobel prize winner and we have to live life. And, and the other thing is, is that, so the other thing to unpack is when do you quit something? Because sometimes it is too many things. And I think, you know, you quit something essentially when you no longer enjoy it. So if you, if you love doing something, even if it doesn't make money, you should continue to do it because it's like you said, if you love something enough and you're persistent with it enough, there is some way to make money at it. And I look at, I look at, for instance, I'll take chess as an example. Not everybody, there's 65 million people around the world play chess maybe once a day. And not every, not of those 65 million people, only 10 people are in the top 10 and only the top 10 can make a living playing chess. But then there's some people who stream, uh, playing chess on Twitch, for instance. And we were talking about Twitch earlier, but I know people making who are maybe in the top 10,000 or the top 100,000 of chess players in the world, but they're making a better living than some people in the top 10 because they're killing it on Twitch now. Or maybe there's other streams. They started a publishing company selling chess books to the 65 million people who are interested in chess and they're making a killing. So if you love something enough, you're going to find some spoke over the years where your love is, could be transformed into money. And I'll just use, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll pick a different sport as an example. So I'll pick tennis. So in tennis, if you're, if you're playing tennis and you're constantly slamming it, you know, to the other side, so you, you're, you're in control of, of the point. Like you're the one who's control, the, the other person's barely returning the ball. You're, you're hitting it constantly to one corner as fast as possible. The other, your opponent is barely returning it, but you're in control of the situation. So now you can, you can't win that way. You can't win because he's always returning it. But what you could do is you can transform your advantage that you're, that you're, you're slamming it harder than he is. So he's, he's a little off balance. You could transform that advantage into a winning advantage by then hitting it to the other side of the court unexpectedly. And all the, what my point is, is that if you love something enough, you will learn more about it and you'll be able to transform that advantage, which is your love and knowledge for something into a, something you can monetize. It's all to, everything's about transforming advantages into a better advantage and, or, or, or what, or a different advantage. So a monetizable one in this case. So that's why I agree with you that no matter what you love, you build up 
you build up enough knowledge and experience and network, and you're able to transform your advantages into something you monetize over time. But when you don't love it anymore, that's when you should probably give up or when it's just too hard or things are difficult and there's a struggle. And like, for instance, for you to go from 200 subscribers to 20,000 is going to be hard, but that's a good thing. If you love doing it, if you enjoy doing it, you don't have to love it every moment because it's a struggle. Nobody loves pain and too much struggle, but if you love it enough and it's too much of a struggle one day and you wake up the next day and you want to go at it again, you're still in love with it. Even not, even if not every single minute, but if just over a period of time, you think, ah, this is just not working. It's more of a gut feeling. Like one time I started a business, I created an online dating service and I raised money for it. Everybody wired their money. And the day after everybody wired their money, I woke up like in a panic because I just didn't really feel like I could do this. Like I knew, I didn't feel like I knew what I was doing. So I just simply wired everyone's money back and shut it down. And I was out some money. I'd spent some money building the business, but I didn't want to double down on it. I, you know, I didn't want to put good money after bad. And so I just gave up or another time I was doing a podcast called question of the day with Stephen Dubner, who's a co-author of Freakonomics. We did like 150 episodes or so. And it was fun and I enjoyed hanging out with Steven, was doing it three times a week, but it just, it became a chore mm -hmm. and we weren't growing anymore. Like if anything, our download numbers were going down a little bit. So it was time to give up. We had maxed out what we were gonna get from that and there were other things I was interested in. Yeah. So you just kind of know when to quit something. Is the, is the, and, and that sounds like a bad answer, but it's the only answer really. There's no formula. I get it. I feel like it's a character flaw. I was like this in relationships too, where I knew it was a wrong relationship, but I, I'm so loyal, you know? And I think that's a blessing and a curse. But I think another question I was going to ask you was when do you know, like hiring someone to help you? I've been a solopreneur for so long. And even with some of these projects, even with the newsletter, when do you think to yourself, okay, Jen, you have to hire an assistant. You have to hire someone to help with this. I'm the kind of person where I don't hire anybody. I learn. And then I do it based on how much I've learned how to do it. You know, I figure things out. And I think that's definitely a flaw too, is not knowing when to bring someone in to maybe help with some of these projects. This is a great question too. So in my first business, it was called Reset. Again, it was the business that made websites. I was really against hiring anybody until finally we had so much work that I had to hire somebody. And then I was really against hiring a secretary or an assistant until finally I was just getting so many phone calls and dealing with so many menial tasks I didn't want to do that I had to hire a secretary. So you only hire when I feel when you're at the brim of you just can't move one more inch yeah. unless you hire someone to help you move that inch. Or, or if you have like an easy task that is, you know, you're just not qualified. Like for instance, I'm not, I used to be a computer programmer, but I majored in computer science and I, my first business involved me as a programmer, but now it's 20 years later, I can't really program. So if I needed a programmer, I would hire that. So it's also good to hire when you know that if I spend $10, I'm going to make a hundred. If I spend 10,000, I'm going to make a hundred thousand. So you hire when it's very, it's accretive to your earnings. So I, let's say, you know, that you being entrepreneurial makes you $500 an hour. You're okay. Hiring someone for $30 an hour to do 
uh, tasks that you don't, that you don't want to do. Like, you know, whatever it is in the newsletter business, like organizing a King Sumo contest, for instance, or whatever. So then you can hire an assistant for those things. But, but yeah, I agree with you. Be very careful about hiring an assistant. Yeah. I've Unt- always, until you absolutely need it. I've always been weird about spending money on things, but you know, even with this newsletter, I'm so proud of myself because I was like, you know, I'm just gonna spend money. I, one of the ways I'm going to grow it is, and I was researching this and I found this way is you can pay to advertise your newsletter and another person's newsletter. Right. So I found a newsletter that had an audience that I thought could be similar. And I paid for an ad that's going out July 16th. And I thought that that was a huge step for me because I'm so cheap and I don't pay for, I don't like to pay for things. But I was like, you know what, Jen, it was $120, which I think is a lot, but it could, what it could maybe give me 50, hopefully 50 new subscribers. That to me was worth it. Yeah. And so that's a great idea. And, and particularly where's the audience of newsletter readers? Well, they're reading newsletters. Right. So it's a great idea to hire, to, to buy an ad in a newsletter. And, but here's the thing. And, and you discovered this with Facebook ads uh, a few weeks ago. The critical thing is always measuring success and failure. So you just want to know that where did the traffic come from? Did it come from uh, an email, which might mean that they subscribe after re- or came to your site after reading uh, the ad in another newsletter, or maybe you set up a special URL from the ad so it goes so you could track it. You just want to basically make sure you have the right analytics for all these things. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's all sorts of weird ways to advertise that might be cheap. Like during the pandemic, it might have been cheap to advertise on billboards. Or one time, Jay and I tried an experiment where I put an ad in you know, New York city cabs, you know, those TVs in the New York city cabs. I bought some ads in that just to see if what would happen. Nothing much, but (laughs) it's an experiment. Experiments are always worth it. If you can measure success, if you have a metric beforehand of how you're going to judge success, and then you're, you make sure you are able to actually execute on that. Um, but yeah, so, so, so this brings us to how's how's it going? <laughs> what have what what have what have you been up to this week? So this week I made it my goal to double the subscribers, which I did. I made it my goal to start the three times a week frequency, which I did. And um, I remember last time we talked about like maybe brainstorming ideas outside of the wedding industry. So I brainstormed ten potential business ideas or categories outside the wedding industry. That was hard. That took me a lot of time to figure out and do. Um, so those are some of the things that I was working on. But I also just just because I'm feeling so inspired, I was I've been making little changes to existing businesses and projects of mine, and seeing such a change. You know, with my bridesmaid for hire business, I changed some of the landing pages. I added videos. I just made some really quick changes, and I've seen, I've seen a lot of success from just little things like that. So uh, I noticed that even when I'm working on the newsletter or new things like that, I'm just finding myself really spilling over on other projects, making little changes and doing experiments too. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... (laughs) 3 a.m. The office was shocked. (laughs) That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. 
<laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. You experimented on Twitch. Yeah. You, you streamed on Twitch, which I, again, I would try a couple more times. Uh, and uh, so now I'm looking at some of these 10 businesses outside, like card decks. I love that idea. You know, maybe there's even card decks, like the, the should you get married card game. Yeah. And maybe it's like uh, you have like a hundred different situations and Ooh. there's probably a game there somewhere yeah. uh, where a couple plays it and I give my fiance or girlfriend or whatever uh, a car, uh, two cards and, or, and, and, um, you know, maybe it's like a, a gourmet restaurant or a Broadway show. And then she writes down which one she likes better. And then I have to pick, so almost like the newlywed game. Yeah. And then I have to pick which one, um, she likes better. And then a certain score means you guys hate each other. A certain score means you guys are friends and a certain score means you you're only you only have physical attraction and another score means yeah you should get married and then the top score is you should be grandparents together <laughs> and uh uh you know so that's that's one idea or or it could be like um your your sister is a, here's a situation that's in one of the cards uh it could be just a situational kind of game so a card says your sister's husband is cheating on her do you tell your sister and uh i have to guess what she would do and she writes down what, what she would do and then we compare you know who's right and you could score it and then it's the way people get to know each other so uh, uh i think that's an exciting i think i think making a card game for couples should they get engaged should you be engaged or not yeah uh, or should you be married or should you get married sorry and that might be a fun card game that would sell a million, you know, decks I'm, or you'd sell it off your newsletter. I am obsessed with starting a card deck. This was a goal of mine in the beginning of the year because I, I see them really exploding. There's some people out there who have created these card decks, these games, and they sell really, really well. I was even thinking of one for the first years of marriage, you know, something catchy around like tough conversations or our conversations to have your first year of marriage, ga like games or activities, challenges, experiments, like something around the first years of marriage, because, um, that could be a product that I think could really sell. But then again, it could just be relationship card decks in general, like the, should you get married card deck, the first years of marriage card deck, the, before you go to a marriage therapist card deck, you know, like all these different kinds of things. Yeah. So let's think about this for a second. Um, uh, uh, now it seems overwhelming, like, oh my gosh, how am I going to make a card deck? But if you really break it down, this yeah. is the beauty of breaking things down. It actually is not so overwhelming. No. So let's say, let's say we're going to do that situational one where it's like some really tricky situation and, uh, you both, you, you know, one side writes down what they would do. The other side predicts what they would do. And so, okay. The first thing is, let's say you have to come up with 200 situations. Yeah. Um, that's step number one. That's not so hard. You no. have a cup of coffee in the morning, you write yeah. down 200 situations, maybe two or three mornings. So it just takes you a 
couple hours. Or you uh, go on tops. Quora, my favorite, my new favorite place, Quora, and you research what people are asking. I mean, people are asking such honest things, and you write down those situations. Exactly. Yeah. Like, uh, oh, there's so many situations on Quora. That's a great idea. So, okay, number of situations. That's not overwhelming. You can do that. Uh, then uh, I'm gonna Google right now. Uh, how do I print a card deck? There's so many places you can do it. I've researched this and then, and there's so many places you can do it. It's not that expensive and you can customize an entire card deck. Yeah. Like here's one shuffledink.com request a, a, a quote for your game cards. Yep. Done. Yep. So all you have to do is give them situations and get, and pay for a card deck to be made. Okay. No problem. Um, so, so get a card deck printed 10 seconds because you just have yep. to hire them. Um, and then maybe you need like illustrations and design, but maybe they do that actually. Let me yeah. see. I'm going to, I'm going to just hit this one link. It's an ad. I'm giving Google a little bit, three cents or whatever <laughs> they paid for this ad, uh, custom playing cards. Do they design? Um, let's see about, oh yeah, they have templates and graphics. So, okay. Your design's all done. So I don't know. It seems like it takes five seconds. I'm going to do this. It seems like it takes five <laughs> seconds to make a card deck about marriages. Now then, now the harder part is figuring out how to sell it, yeah. but uh, you can market it on your newsletter yeah. or you could market it on your podcast or your, everybody who's ever emailed you, you know, you can email them. I just made this card deck or you could put it in a Facebook thing or, uh, or you could buy, you know, ads on, uh, you know, relationship sites. I don't know if like Tinder sells ads or other dating sites sell ads, but you could buy an ad on, there's probably plenty of places. You could buy an ad on Pornhub, like it's for three cents and, and people certainly at least want relationships there, or maybe they have <laughs> relationships that they're not satisfied with. I don't know. Yeah. And, uh, uh, so you could just try different ways to market it given that. And by the way, here's an idea. You can advertise it before you even make it. Mm. Because you can make it just like one card and have a graphic designer make it as if it's real. And then if you get enough people interested, then you place the order for the cards. Right. So, and if nobody's interested, you could say, ah, forget it. You, or or you, the other thing is you have to set up an order page. Uh, but that's pretty easy to do, right? You could just, yeah. there's plenty of like, um, you know, Shopify or Etsy or even eBay and Amazon store to set up an order page. And those are, it seems like, so coming up with the situations, getting it printed, figuring out the first few places to advertise it or market it and setting up an order page. Those are really just the four tasks to, to set up a card deck business. It would, it's a pretty quick way to make another spoke. Now, maybe it could flop or maybe in the worst case scenario, you make 10 or a hundred decks and you do them as a giveaway for the next hundred people who subscribe to your newsletter. Who knows? Yeah. There's some other use for it that you could do. Uh, or it's just a fun thing. You, it's a, uh, you know, a, a friend of mine wrote a book, Giftology, uh, John uh, Rulin, about the importance of, you know, getting business through giving good gifts. And his book's called Giftology. And maybe it's just your own personal deck that you've made and you give it as a gift to people and that, you know, keeps the connection with them in some interesting, interesting way. So, you know, this is just to say that all these ideas, like at first an idea feels overwhelming, like, oh my gosh, now I got to make a game and a card deck, but actually it might be fun to make up 200 situations 
at the very least, that's content for a newsletter. Yeah. And it could be like, here's what you need to ask your girlfriend or boyfriend the day before you get married. And then you give the 200 situations or part one is hundred situations. Part two is another hundred. Yeah. And so that makes the newsletter easier. That's the worst case scenario is that you have a hundred interesting situations and you never make the card deck. So I always try to think of, uh, uh, do I get value out of the worst case situation? So the worst case is, is a bad idea, but maybe I could transform the idea into something else. And, uh, so let's see. So, uh, 10 businesses outside the wedding industry. I'm looking at your list right now. Uh, live streamer, motivational advice, pep talker, text message. Yeah. All these things are, are fun ideas, coaching or courses to help people build something. That's a good idea that as you get an audience, you can think about what types of courses. Um, and then, uh, oh, what's this one? Old things that aren't making money, but could. Oh, is that um, did I lose you? old thing? Oh, so just all of my old, all of my projects that aren't making money that could be monetized, you know, like the, just like the pod, I have a podcast that's not making money and like another one of my newsletters for seven years, not making money. So I have, I have so many foundations that could make money, but they're just not. Yeah. Sometimes it's just a matter of thinking about them in different yeah. ways. So for instance, you could take, I, we might've talked about this before. You could take some of your podcast episodes. Let's say you have a bunch of podcast episodes. I'm just making this up about adultery. Yep. You could write a book, adult, how to deal with adultery by combining those episodes, getting the transcripts, having an editor, you know, shape it up a little bit and, and then uploading it to Amazon and you have a book yep. done. And so that's a way to kind of take an advantage you have, which is, uh, you have a bunch of content about a topic and then transform that advantage into something that's maybe a little bit more monetizable, like a book yep. or a newsletter or a course and, and create it. So that's another, that's again, this idea of, of transforming a positive advantage into another, an even greater positive advantage. Uh, so you know, depending on how you measure positive. So I always, I always look at like my own podcast and, oh, okay. So like, here's an idea. I'm looking at your list that you've, you know, you've been adding every, every week or every time you've been on, you've been sending me notes beforehand of what you did and what you're doing and what you're working on and what you're thinking about and questions you have. And so far you have sent me, uh, uh, let me see. You have sent me 38 pages in just a few episodes of this, you've sent me 38 pages of notes. Well, after 10 or 20 episodes of this, or let's just say 10 episodes, not only will you be on your way to making money, but you have a book about your process yeah. of making your first million say, or your first X. And, uh, this is a book that you'll mind. All these notes are going to turn into a book at some point. So everything could be transformed uh, is a good way to look at it. And you don't know really in advance, which is the one that becomes the home run. Mm -hmm. Hopefully all of them do, but one of them will. Yeah. And, uh, boom, that's how you transform. For instance, even just these notes into something that could make money. Do you think I should, I worry about exhausting my audience. Do you think that's something to worry about is exhausting your audience with every week or every other week? Oh, a new book, a new this, a new that. You know, I've, thought about that as well. Like sometimes there have been some years I've put out like two books and there, there was one time I, I put out, um, five episodes a week and, and then I was doing another podcast at the same time. So altogether I was putting out 
eight episodes of me a week. And uh, even Ryan Holiday told me, oh, you're going to tire out your audience. But I don't think that's true. I think you just, what happens is you might not get as many readers or viewers per episode or issue or whatever, but you'll ultimately grow your number of unique readers. So some readers might say, oh, well, I'm not going to read everything that Jen puts out, but now I get to pick and choose what I'm going to read and, or listen to or whatever. And, but that, but, but the more content you have, the more opportunities it gives for people to share. And so ultimately your overall audience of unique followers grows, even if per episode doesn't grow. Yeah. Uh, it's just people will pick and choose now what to listen to. So I don't think ultimately it's a bad thing. I think everybody always says it's quality, not quantity. I actually think it's the reverse. I think it's quantity because out of the quantity, you'll get some quality. Yeah. And like, you know, there's people out there who write, who want to be writers, but they, they are perfectionists. So they want to write, they want to put 20 years into making that one great novel. Well, you need experience to make a great novel. You can't, it's very rare that the first book someone writes is, is makes their whole career and makes them millions. So you have to write a lot yeah. to be a good writer and to have the luck and to have uh, the right combination of things that will make that you don't really know in advance what's going to be popular and what isn't. So it's really, it's a, a lot of making money is a quantity game. And I wouldn't worry about people getting tired unless it's like, t like sometimes for instance, if I write every article, well, I went broke and then this is what I did. People will get tired of that. They won't read my articles anymore. He always writes about going broke and then bouncing back. I've read that already. Yeah. But if I take, if I, again, slice my life in different ways and have different ways of perspectives of looking at things, then people, you know, okay, I don't want to read about him going broke again, but he just did a profile of Leonardo da Vinci in his own unique way. Leonardo da Vinci went broke and here's how he came back from it. I'll read that. And so you kind of just have different ways to slice things. And that's how you make, you know, that's how you turn that quantity, the advantage of quantity, you transform it into the advantage of quality, which transforms into a greater audience overall. I appreciate that. Yeah, it, it makes total sense. And I appreciate that. And I think it's such a, it's just such a thing I'm always so scared of. Even with this week, when I said, okay, I'm going to put out three newsletters. The first one I was, and I thought of you because I was so scared to press send. It was about going to a marriage therapist with Adam. And I was so scared because it was so personal. And I figured maybe it would scare some people. Maybe, I don't know. I was so scared. Finally press send on it. It took me way too long to do that. Then this morning, I said, you know what? I'm not going to be a perfectionist. I'm just going to write it in 25 minutes and send it out. And I did that. And I felt such a and shift. And it's awesome. Thank you. But I felt a shift. And I also thought of you when I felt so scared to put that out because you always say if you're not, you know, you always say that you get scared. If you're not feeling scared, then maybe it's not good enough almost. Or I forgot how you say it about some of the things you write. But that marriage therapist one was so personal and scary to press publish on. But it got so much attention. And I think that yeah, that was big. Even 52 annoying questions people ask right after you get married. This was an experiment for you also because yeah. you have, it's a list, it's a listicle. And sometimes people are afraid, oh, did I really do anything original with a listicle? Sometimes people don't like those. By the way, listicles do great. Yeah. There's a reason why it's the 10 commandments and not the commandments. <laughs> so listicles historically do really good. There's, again, there's a reason that, lots of religious texts are numbered. There's the four noble truths. There's the 108 yoga sutras. There's, uh, the 10 commandments. Uh, 
the the books of the New Testament are numbered and on and on. But I think I would do more listicles even. But like, for instance, what were you scared when you published this one? Oh, you were, you published this one also while you were Twitch streaming. So there's, you could be afraid that potentially it's, you know, you were distracted while you're writing it and, you know, it might not be as interesting, but this was an awesome one, the 52 annoying, uh, questions. So, uh, and also you, 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 you might not want to piss off. Here's a, here's another thing I would be afraid of if I was writing this one, I wouldn't want to piss off anybody who was asking me those questions. (laughs) So yeah, I mean, I've been writing, yeah, I've been writing nonfiction for so long that I piss everyone in my life because everything is content to me. Every conversation is going to be written, you know, so it's, I'm not never really scared of that though. I was a little scared about, you know, Adam is now the main character of all my stories. Luckily he doesn't really care, but now I'm writing about my husband, you know, and the, our first year of marriage. So I don't ever ask him. I just put it out there first. It's crazy. Like I, I have lost friends, family, customers, everything, um, from my writing and you know, that shouldn't happen, but sometimes it has, and it's out of your control. I try never to hurt anybody in my writing, but, uh, except for myself, I'm willing to hurt myself, but, but yeah, it is always important to feel afraid before you hit publish. It might be because you're stylistically afraid that, Oh, this style is not going to work. Or maybe you're afraid somebody might be offended when they shouldn't be, or maybe you're afraid like you're being too vulnerable. Uh, uh, but something, should and the reason is is because when you're afraid, you know you're doing something unique that no one else has ever done before. You're doing something unexpected, and only the unexpected is going to stand out. Yeah. Uh, you know, there. The, I used to say, uh, better to be the only than the best. But actually, even better than that is better to do the unexpected than to be the only. Mm. <laughs> and uh, you know, if you think about a, a thriller novel, it's not that if someone writes the only thriller novel about you know, janitors afraid of spiders, that might not be so interesting. But if you do something unexpected where it's a janitor and suddenly everybody in the school is vampires and he has to figure out how to survive and stop them from taking over the world, that's a little more unexpected. Yeah. And uh, uh, so so I think the the the, the sup- unexpected is, is interesting. Like, you know, because you're married and here you are writing about the problems of marriage. It's kind of an interesting little twist. Right. And it's only the first year. Right. I'm so, in month three of being married and I'm already writing about divorce and stuff. But to, you know, you know by the yeah. way, that's a, that's a newsletter topic. Why am I writing a, a newsletter about divorce in the first year when I just got married? What's my husband think of this? You could interview your husband, what he thinks about it. And that's an episode and people are going to share it. I love it. You know, so, two fun facts I learned this week writing about marriage was one, 50% of people go to marriage therapy. And the second fun fact was that most people go for an average of 12 sessions with 66% of them improving in 20 sessions or less. Really? I wonder how many people go to a couples therapist who ultimately get divorced. I thought it was interesting that 50% of people get divorced, but also 50% of people go to a marriage therapist. I thought that that was very interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. I wonder if, what the overlap there is. I know. But and also since 66% get better, that's that's pretty good. But then it's like, what does better even mean? I feel like no one is exploring yeah. what any of this means. Like, what does it mean to actually improve? This is a relationship. It's... Yeah. I'm fascinated by this world because I think people talk about marriage in such concrete ways and it's just not, that's not really how it it should be talked about. Yeah. No. So all, all this is good. I think, um, you know, uh, 
I think we came up with other ways of thinking about different streams of income. Yeah. Uh, I answered some of your questions yeah. ranging from the newsletter to uh, work. By the way, in terms of hours a day to work, the average person works about two hours a day. Like the average person in an office works about two hours a day. So, so when somebody says, oh my gosh, you're just doing too much. I'm feeling exhausted just listening to you. It's, they, they, that's in their mind. Like the reality is all of these things we discussed and all of these things you're doing probably shouldn't take you more than three, four hours a day. Yeah. A and that's not so, that's not so long. Like we, we talked about a lot of things. Again, we talked about making a card deck. It'd probably take you less than four hours in one day to make an entire card deck business. I agree. Uh, I mean, even at just least doubling a, at least the first two thirds of it, doubling the fault, doubling the subscribers from 100 to 200. I sat down yesterday, did 10 different things. It didn't take me all day and I got double. So yeah, I, I agree with you. I think while it might be exhausting to some people, I still live a decent life. I don't sit at the computer all day, you know? So I think that that's fascinating, but I have a list of things I want to do next before next time. Like I want to I want to start the card process. I want to, you know, do on some, do something with the odd jobs. Like I have a couple of things I want to, I want to work on because I, I think it could be cool to see what happens. And, you know, um, uh, it's interesting. Like, like in this past year, I published two books. I of course do my podcast three, four times a week. I've started a, a business or two. I released a TV series. Uh, I do did do a lot of stand-up comedy or did, uh, I do lots of things and people say, oh my gosh, that's so much. I wish I had your kind of time. I don't have any time. What's your secret. And I don't have a secret. I don't, I, it's not, I don't really work more than three or four hours a day. That's kind of my limit. And then I like to enjoy my life after that. It doesn't really, it just is matter of efficiency in time. And that's really the only secret. Most people again, work two hours a day and view that as a whole day. And the other, the other thing is it's not about the number of hours. It's about is, are your efforts compounding or just adding to your results? So, and I don't know how to really describe that, but if you just think in that way, am I compounding or am I adding? There's no way to really quantify this because it's not something you can measure really. Like your, your results are hard to measure, but if you just have a mindset, like, are my activities compounding the efforts I've put in before, or am I just adding stuff? That's important too, because compounding, like when I started writing, I wrote articles about finance initially. Those were my first paying jobs. And I was compounding because I had a unique writing style. This is like in 2002. I had a unique writing style for finance. And I started getting more and more followers and they would share my stuff because I always tried to make sure it was shareable. And I, so I had a sense that I was compounding and that's how I built up an audience in the finance space. And then much later in other areas of life. But, uh, so just thinking in terms of compounding is a good way to think about time. And like, when you learn something, did I, did I learn just one new thing or did this one new thing I learn really add to all the knowledge I've had previously? So let's say I'm learning, um, well, again, how to play tennis. So. I learned, if you've learned tennis, you learn how to do a forehand, you learn how to do a backhand. And now if you learn how to, uh, that, okay, weightlifting in, in a, such a specific way will make your forehand more powerful, then you didn't just learn, okay, now I'm going to learn a little bit about weightlifting. 
the three hours you spent learning these new weightlifting techniques added to the hundred hours previously that you spent learning how to do the forehand. So yeah. everything you've learned private previously has more value now. And so that's kind of a compounding way of, of learning or doing things is that the new thing you do adds to all of the old things you do. So in chess, for instance, which I'm trying to learn in a unique way right now, if I learn how to play the end of the game better, it actually adds to everything I've learned about how to play the opening of the game better. It's sort of a dorky thing to <laughs> mention, but it's true. It's how yeah. I compound my learning there. Yeah, so, which I think is so important for a solopreneur because you're on your own. There's no one forcing you to do anything. And I think learning how to compound in many different aspects of what you do every day is just so important. And also learning how to be more efficient because, yeah, you can sit down for three to four hours and, and not get anything done. And then you feel sort of bad about your day. But I think as a solopreneur, learning the art of compounding is is such an important thing. Yeah. So... Anyway, this is all great. Like, I think we've covered a lot of stuff yeah. from weird businesses yeah. to card decks to answering your questions. Great job doubling your number of subscribers. I can't wait to see what you do for next week or next session. And and then sooner or later, we, we will start monetizing. It's just now you're kind of laying the foundation. Can't yeah. build the house till the we have a good solid foundation. I agree. I agree. But I did have someone reach out to me and um, pitch me like a product, and I said, "Hey, I have a newsletter. I want to want to advertise in it." So I'm already finding. Yeah. I'm already putting things out there to see. Hey, why not? You know. Um, Another good thing is is to look for affiliate yeah. deals. So uh, and just for people who don't know what affiliate deal is, uh, somebody's advertising a real estate course and they don't pay for the ad. But you're, there's a lot of software to track if it, if uh, somebody who subscribes to their course comes from your newsletter and you get 50% or 80% or whatever of the revenues of whoever you send over. So that's an affiliate deal. And those could be quite lucrative. I've made more money from affiliate deals than ads on my uh, my own newsletter. So uh, that's an important, important thing. So yeah, next week we could start thinking about different experiments we could do to try to monetize. Amazing. I'm excited. I'm going to have some new interesting things for you next week, aside from the newsletter, because I am so awesome. I just love a lot of these ideas. So you'll you'll be hearing from me soon with some cool new things also. Excellent. All right. Well, well, Jen, thanks so much for, for this. This is great. And uh, uh, I'll see you in the next week or thanks, so. Thanks, James. I'll talk to you soon. Good luck. Thanks. Thanks. 